let's turn to 1 John chapter 5. First John chapter 5, it's toward the back of the Bible if you are uh, new to the Bible. Um, and if you can't find it, there's a, con- there a uh, table of contents right in the front of your Bible. First John chapter 5, let's read, uh, follow along as I read the entire chapter. And uh, when I finish reading this chapter, we will have read the entire book of First John together as a church aloud. Pretty cool, huh? First John chapter 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who believes the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commands. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. For whoever has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God, that He has borne concerning His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the the testimony in Himself. Whoever does not believe God has made Him a liar, because He has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning His Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, And this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked, asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask God who will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil, evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, Keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you open our hearts and our eyes up as we look into this passage today. 
we uh, stand before you as broken human beings, recognizing that there is nothing intrinsically good within us that you should accept. Yet, God, in your mercy, you have given us Jesus Christ. You have sent your Son into this world who lived life for us, who died for us, whose blood we receive for the forgiveness of our sins, and we stand then as reborn, remade, recreated individuals. And God, as we look into this final chapter that is exploring that very topic, I just ask that you um, enlighten us, that the words that are right here uh, jump off the page and into our hearts, and that your Spirit convicts us of our sins and uh, teaches us the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. And everybody said, Amen. In, in the Bible, there's this story of a man named Ezekiel. And uh, Ezekiel is led to an old, dry, hot, dusty valley. And what he sees in this valley are human remains, bones. Just a valley filled with bones, probably an old burial site where bodies were heaped upon bodies and over time the flesh fell off and all that's left are bones. And the way Ezekiel describes what he's seeing as he writes his, his book, he says these were dry bones, like these bones were old. There was nothing left to them. They were just a bunch of dry bones. And as Ezekiel is viewing this somewhat horrific sight of bones that he's found, human remains, God comes to Ezekiel and he asks him something that would blow your mind. He says, Ezekiel, do you think that these bones can live? Do you think that these bones can live? Now that is the question that God has asked us over the past five weeks as we've journeyed through 1 John. I wonder if God has taken you into the, the dry and, and dusty valley of your soul and He has given you eyes to see the dry bones that exist there, that are just simply lying there in a heap within your soul. You see, there's essentially two types of people in this world. There's, there's the man who, who believes that he is in and of himself completely and fully alive. He's alive to the world. He's alive to pleasure. He's alive to his money. He's alive to his friends. He's alive to his desires. And he sees no need for anything else. But then there is the man or the woman that God has led to the dry and dusty valley of our souls and has shown us, has given us eyes to see the dry bones that exist there. The darkness that exists there. The need that exists there. The sins that just continue. The addictions. The, the habits the, the utter lack of joy in this life, the utter lack of joy for God and love for God. There is, there is the type who's completely fulfilled in and of himself and happy and sees no need for anything. And then there is the type who says, 
I have seen a valley of dry bones in my soul. There's deadness there. And there doesn't seem to be anything that I myself can do. Do you think, Ezekiel, that these bones can live? The answer might be, well, if you expect me to put them together, the answer is no. There is no way that I can revive these old, dry bones. Lifeless and hopeless, full of doubts, sins, dryness, and deadness. This is the final sermon in this book of 1 John. And what, what John has been writing about over the, fa- the past, uh, now f- the f- this is the fifth chapter, and our sixth sermon in 1 John, what he's been writing about, what we've been trying to, to, to pull out and to, to, to look at and to celebrate is nothing less than life itself. It's, he's talking about life, real life, true life, the only life that can possibly exist. And so as he's, ra- as he's wrapping it up, he, um, or what I want to point out are three proofs that John gives us here in 1 John 5 that, uh, that show us that we truly have been reborn, made new, brought back to life, that we truly are alive. Um, but before we do that, before we discuss what, it, uh, what, what these proofs are, that we can know that we are reborn, that we can know that we are truly alive, um, what I want to do is go back uh, and, and talk about again what it really means and what John's getting at, what it means to be reborn and what it means to come alive. So, let me start with this question. What made you a Christian? What made you a Christian? Now, that's a question that I think the majority of, or many uh, evangelicals in America would be confused about uh, would, would give somewhat of a confusing answer. What made you a Christian? See, we typically would answer that question by saying something like, my belief made me a Christian. Or my decision made me a Christian. I, I, I thought about it, I, I looked at the facts, I, I read the Bible, and then I decided to become a Christian. That's what made me a Christian. I believed the right things. I read Romans and I saw all these propositions that Paul points out and I, and I believed these things and so that, that belief made me a Christian. Or we might say it's something else that I did, like I, I started attending church. That made me a Christian. Or I grew up in a Christian home and a Christian family and so that, that made me a Christian as I, as I just simply, as I simply grew up. Um, there, there is this underlying doctrine right here in 1 John that we have to understand in order to understand anything else that John is, is, is saying. And so everything that John says here in 1 John, including where we're going to go today, is all based on this fundamental, bottom line, foundational doctrine of regeneration, of rebirth, of what it means to become like a new creature. And so we have to understand rebirth in order to understand what John is saying here. Otherwise, there are plenty of verses that we could like pull out of 1 John and turn Christianity into something that is moralistic. Turn Christianity into something which basically means 
we do these certain things, we believe the right things, we, 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 we uh, go through this list of actions, and if we do the right things and believe these right things, then God will accept us. Then we will be made into something new. But what John is premising, I believe, his entire book on, is that it, it, the Christian faith has nothing to do with obedience equals acceptance by God. It has nothing to do with the fact that if, if we do these certain things or believe these right things, then and only then will God accept us. So that's what I want to dive into first, and then we're going to get into, into uh, the, the proofs. So before the proofs of being re- reborn, the underlying doctrine. Look at verse 1 in chapter 5. He says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So I want you to see the way that he writes that sentence. Everybody who believes that Jesus is Christ, everybody that believes Jesus is the Messiah, has been, meaning like past tense, something's already happened. So there's something that's happened that's allowed them to even have the freedom to believe that Jesus is the Savior. So everybody that believes that Jesus is the Christ has been, and what is that that's happened? Somebody read it? Born of God. So those that believe that Jesus is the Christ, they have been reborn. And that word of right there, where it says born of God, that word of is an important word because it literally means out of. Meaning those who believe that Jesus is is the Christ have come out of God. They've been born out of the womb of God's Spirit, and by God's power, they've come out of His own mind, out of His own creativity, and God has created them into something new, something reborn, something that has life, bones that have been put back together. Let me try to explain this to you. Uh, About 11 months ago, almost exactly, my son Haddon was born. Now, what did Haddon do to bring about his life in this world? Did Haddon decide to be conceived? Nope. Did he he decide to receive the nutrition from his mother while he was growing in the womb? No. It was a gift that was just given to him. Did he decide to grow? Did he decide to go from this little itty-bitty seed of a baby into something that actually looks like a baby? Did he decide to grow? In no. On February 2nd, 2012, when he came into this world, did he decide, okay, I'm coming into this world? Well, we, we usually do say it that way, don't we? Baby's coming, whether you like it or not. But look, Haddon just came into this world out of the womb, created. Haddon didn't do anything to receive the life that he currently has. It just simply happened to him. Are we tracking here? And so what I believe John is saying is that those who believe that Jesus is Christ are people who have been, something's happened to them. There's been a rebirth. Something like outside of them, something beyond them. It's just simply happened. Um, John, in his gospel, if you were to track back to the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, same guy, I believe, wrote, wrote 1 John in the gospel of John. 
in John's Gospel, in chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, he just simply outright denies that we have any action in our salvation, that there's anything that we do to earn or acquire our salvation. I want to read it to you. You don't have to turn there, but it's in John 1, 12 and 13. He says, but to him who did receive him, so those who've received Christ as their Savior, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, he says, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. So how were they born? He uses the same word. They were born out of God. And so listen, what made you a Christian? What was it that, that made you into a reborn new creation? The answer is that you were reborn. That God did something in your soul and He filled you with His Spirit and He convicted you of your sins and He made you into a new creation. Bam! It happened. That's the doctrine of regeneration. That's the doctrine of, doctrine of rebirth that this entire book is based on. And we have to understand that because we have to understand that our salvation is not something that's earned by us. God didn't just simply grant you forgiveness and grant you entrance into his kingdom because you asked for it, because you did, you did such a good job. And we have to understand that he loved you to the degree that he grabbed your soul and he, bam, made you into something new, gave you a rebirth, a new creation. Now, I want to push it even further. Uh, and, and as we do, I think you'll start to see what John is is getting at and has been getting at this, in, this entire book. Now that we are reborn, now that we are made into new creations, now that we are something different than we once were, we have to understand that we are fundamentally changed. We're not just simply people that are forgiven, but remain the same as we always were. But when rebirth occurs, when, when new creation happens, we become fundamentally different than we once were. So essentially then the Christian is someone who can say that I am aware that I am different than I once was. I'm aware that I'm not the same that I once was. Now that may not be drastic for you, depending on when you were converted to Christ. It may, not be like, it may not have uh, been something that was like miraculous and happened all at the same time, but we are fundamentally aware that we are not once what we once were. We were dead. We were chained to the world. We, it's, it's all we knew, but now we are different. We are made new. Now, the second piece of this, and I want to be careful here. We need to be careful here, but the Christian or the disciple, the person who's reborn, is someone who is also fundamentally aware that they are different than other non-Christians. Now, if you are not a Christian here, this is where you probably would say, that's the problem with all of you Christians. I'm getting out of this joint. You always think you're different than us. And, and the answer is simply, well, if I'm a Christian at all, I have to believe that. I must believe that. I mean, do we understand that being a Christian means that we have been transformed into something new? That we are no longer bound to the chains of darkness to the, in, the, in the world of, that's dominated by hate and the enemy, but we have been freed from that and we're now chained to Christ. 
We're freed and we're, we, we have entrance into the kingdom of light. So we, we, we are fundamentally aware that we're different, but not in the sense, and this is important, not in the sense that the Pharisee is, all right? So the Pharisee is, that's the person who says, God, thank you for not making me like that person. They're, the Pharisee is proud in and of themselves. They're, they, they're looking at their own actions. And they're, they're, like, they're proud about the fact that they are doing so well, that they have done so much to earn God's acceptance. So we're not, we don't understand it in the sense of, the, of a Pharisee, but rather we take our pride in God himself. Because what we understand is that there is nothing good about me that I should be accepted, yet God just simply did something for me and on my, on my behalf. And I have been reborn out of that spirit. And we take our pride completely in Christ. So with that, with that said, let's move into these three proofs that, that I, I think John is pointing out here in 1 John chapter 5. <clears throat> so if you want to read with me, we're going to look at the first verse. Proof number one is a belief in Jesus as the Christ. So how do we know that we are reborn? How do we know that we've been made into a new creation? Number one, we believe that Jesus is the Christ. Look at it. He says, everybody who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Now, at this point, I always feel like I have to make it clear and sort of remind us that Christ was not Jesus' last name. So we can't find like a first century ancient phone book and look under Christ and find Jesus. Uh, But rather, Christ is a title that was given to Jesus. It was actually a title that was given to a number of people who ended up uh, being failed Christs. So anybody who who came along and and who the the, uh, Israel saw very well could be the Messiah, the chosen one to redeem us of our sins, was given the title Christ. The one that we still call Christ today is the one who rose from the dead. And that's Jesus, the Christ. And so the Christian then is someone who believes that Jesus is the Christ. The person who's reborn believes that Jesus is the Messiah, which means he's the Savior of of the world. John fleshes this out in verses 6 through 12 right there. He talks about how Jesus is the Son of God and how we have these proofs, these testimonies that Jesus is the Son Son of God. He says he came by the Spirit. The Spirit testifies to Jesus. The Spirit within you, for those of you who are Christians, testifies to the fact that Jesus is the Christ. He said he came by the water, which I believe refers to his baptism. This moment where the voice of God boomed, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And then through the blood as well. The blood is also a testimony. The fact that he died on that cross, that gruesome, terrible crucifixion where the sins of the world were placed upon him and he rose victoriously from that. So we believe then that Jesus is indeed the Christ. Now Tim Keller said this about Christianity and about our our need as Christians for something more. Our need for a Savior. He says Christianity is for people who have the particular kind of strength to admit that their flaws are not superficial. Their heart is deeply disordered and that they are incapable of rectifying themselves. It is for those who see that they need a Savior. 
that they need Jesus Christ dying on the cross to put them right with God. There are two types of people in this world. There is the type that does not believe they need a Savior. And then there are those who say they see the value of dry bones in their soul and they say there's nothing I can do to rectify it and I need something more. I need a Savior. In uh, early 1600s, about 400 years ago, there was a man named Martin Luther who entered into a monastery because Martin Luther was a young man with all of his heart, wanted to be obedient to God. And so in order to, to please God and to try, to try to be obedient to God, he entered into a monastery. And in this monastery, they would, uh, the, the, the monks once a day would go into the confessional booth and confess their sins to the priest. So they confess their sins, they re- receive their absolution, and then they can go on um, feeling better about themselves. The average monk in the monastery, or all the monks in the monastery, would walk into the confessional booth and spend about five minutes in the booth. Because seriously, what do monks have to confess, you know? Like I slept in today 30 minutes, or I fell asleep during Vespers, or I ate too many eggs this morning. And the priest, okay, forgiven, five minutes in and out, boom, boom, every day. Martin Luther joins the monastery and uh, enters into the confessional booth and every day would sit there for five minutes, then ten minutes, thirty minutes, an hour, three hours, sitting in the confessional booth, confessing every single damning sin that he can think of that comes up in his, and he says, the more that I looked for sin, the more that I found There was like an endless well of bones in my soul, an endless well of brokenness in my soul. And so he would just sit there and continue to confess one after another until the the priest would finally cut him off and say, Martin, like, you're being too hard on yourself. Like, just go get a cup of coffee or something. So Luther would walk out of the confessional booth and he said no sooner would he walk out of the booth that he would remember one more damning sin and he would have to walk back in and confess that sin out of fear. You see, Luther was someone who strove with all of his might to be obedient to God and the more he was obedient, the more he realized how disobedient he actually was how much sin there actually existed, how many bones were in this valley of death within his soul. And so what Luther realized, and and I'll read this, reflecting on the gospel, realizing he could not be obedient enough, there was not enough confession that would write him with God. He said, Christ took our sins. Everybody say amen to that. Christ took this valley of bones within me, this endless well of sin, all of that, Christ took our sins, he says, as the Father's wrath on his shoulders, and he has drowned them both in, his, both in himself so that we are thereby reconciled to God and become completely righteous. What John is saying here. We have to understand that. What he is saying here 
is that the Christian, the reborn, is someone who gets that. Who says, I am screwed up and broken, and I've seen a valley of bones in my soul, and I need a Savior. Like, I need something more. And what he's saying then is that this first proof then of being reborn, of being transformed and regenerated, made into a new creation, the first proof is that we believe that Jesus is that Christ. That Jesus is that Savior that we need. The second proof is this, love for God and love for others. So we're reborn, we believe that Jesus is the Christ, and then what we find is that our love for God and our love for others begins to grow. Look at verse 2, 1 John 5. By this we know that we are born, or that we, I'm sorry, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. Whoever is reborn loves God and loves those who have been born of God. The picture here that we have in the New Testament as a whole is that everybody who's a Christian or everybody who's been reborn has been reborn in the same way out of God. So we're all made Christians in the exact same way. We come from God. And then what that means is that we are a what? Somebody say family. We are a family. This is why if you hang around the garden long enough, you start to hear some people call each other brother and sister. That's not because we're trying to be cool or trying to sound religious, but it's because we want to embrace the fact that we are a family, that we have been born from our one Father, God, and that we are indeed brothers and sisters of one another, a family that is just as real, if not more real, than your physical family, and a family where God is our head and our Father. So then, should we love our brothers and sisters? I mean, this is a no-brainer, right? So then those who are reborn of God, or those who are born of God, those who are God's children, just simply love their brothers and sisters who also have been born of God. But what I want you to see here, and what I think is interesting that John points out is this. Look at verse 2. He says, by this we know that we love the children, so how do we know that we love our brothers and sisters? By this we know when we love God and obey His commandments. Do you see what He's doing here? We, we, we love our brothers and, brothers and sisters as proof that we are reborn, but how do we love our brothers and sisters? Through loving God and being obedient to God. Are we tracking here? So what this means is the very best way for you to love someone else, the very best way to love your brothers and sisters In this church, the best way to love others is to love God and be obedient to God. You see, we often say holiness or obedience and love are two separate things. For instance, we might say, well, I can can love um, this person, but I'm not really holy or obedient. I'm not, not following God. Or we might say, well, someone could be holy and obedient, but not really a loving person. John doesn't understand any of that. What John is saying is that we love each other. 
How do we love each other? Well, we love God. And then how do we love God? By being obedient to God, by following His Word. The primary way for you to love your girlfriend is by being obedient to God. The primary way for you to love your husband is by being obedient to God. To love one another in this church, it's by being obedient to God in your private times. The primary way for for my wife and I to love you as a pastor and a pastor's wife is for us to be obedient to God within our own marriage. I mean, we can immediately begin to think of, of people that come to mind who loved us and who loved the brothers and sisters because they were being obedient to God. And unfortunately, we can probably, there's probably some faces that come to your mind of people who did not love the brothers and sisters because they were disobedient to God. So we, we, we love each other by loving God. We love God by being obedient to God. That is the second proof of the fact that we are re, reborn, made new. But here's, here is the, the uh, point that I really want to make with that. Rebirth, God's rebirth for, for individuals, for, for Christians, as He makes you into something new, it doesn't leave you with just simply a list of commands that you must now try to muster up the energy and the courage to follow. And this is the third proof. The third proof is that we then have the desire and the, ob- the ability to be obedient to God. Look at verse 3 and 4. He says, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not what? What does that say? Burdensome, grievous. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. You see, why we once believed that the word of God was burdensome, that the life of holiness was burdensome, we once believed that because we were bound to the world. But those who are born of God, he says, are freed from the world. And, and the word of God is no longer burdensome to them. As a matter of fact, it's the opposite. Those who are reborn by the Spirit of God see the Word of God and they see the Scriptures and they, they take it in and it is a joy for them to follow the Word of God. It is a joy for them to be obedient to God. Now, this is, this is not saying that it will always be easy. Paul, the Apostle, Made that very clear in his own life. Like, I wrestle against my flesh, he wrote. Like, the the things that come naturally to me are the things that I can't do. So I'm fighting for this. So apart from grace-driven effort, well, then we're just going to simply drift away. But what, what John is saying, and what I think is the scope of the entire Scriptures, is that those who are reborn actually now have at least the desire and we have the ability to be obedient to God, to follow His commands, and to please, to please God in that way. And it's not only possible, it's not only an ability, but it is enjoyable and it is desirable for the believer. Do I feel that the Christian life is burdensome? 
Do I feel that the Christian life is a task? Do I feel like reading the Scriptures and, 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 and conforming my life to what I find here? Do I feel that that is against the grain of who I really am? Do I feel like I'm pressing myself and forcing myself into this mold that is really not me? Do I feel like I merely obey the Scriptures out of fear, out of fear of judgment, out of fear of hell? Listen, it is those questions, and it's how I answer those questions that really proclaim whether or not I am a Christian. It's those questions and how I answer them that really proclaim whether or not I have been reborn by the Spirit of God. You see, guys, John doesn't see the Christian life merely in terms of things to believe, things to do, propositions to understand. John sees the Christian life as a large, beautiful, transforming experience. Much like a song would be. As you listen to a song that's large and beautiful and transforming and it just consumes you. I think that's how John sees the Christian life. This is why even as he writes, he's, he's repeating things and he's looping things and he's, he's going back to old arguments and he's trying to emphasize things once again. Because he sees this just not simply as a list of to-dos and a list of right things to believe, but it's like this, this is life. This is everything. This is an, an entire experience of rebirth. And this is what it looks like, he's saying, to be reborn and to have this life. If we could sum up what John is saying, what I think he's saying in this entire book of 1 John is that this is life. This is real life here. This is new life. This is recreated life. This is the life of those who have been born of God and it's all there really is in this world anymore. And why John is writing this, and we're going to kind of close with this because this is huge. Why John is writing this is not to cause doubt in us. He doesn't want us to just simply examine ourselves, see problems there, and then be left with doubt. Well, maybe I'm not a Christian. Maybe I'm not reborn. On the contrary, look at verse 11. John says this, he says, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in His Son. So that's what it's all about. Life in Christ. And then in verse 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. See, what John is writing this for, the whole point of this series and the whole point of this letter, I, I believe, is to say this is life and I want you to know what you have. I want you to be confident in the life that you have in Christ. And if you see things within yourself that are not congruent, that don't make sense, then brother, walk away from that. I want you to see the joy that we have in Jesus Christ. I want you to see this life and I want you to know and have confidence in this New, real, long-lasting life. It's a life worth living. It's like Ezekiel. God tells Ezekiel to speak the word 
of God to this, to the, this valley of dry bones? Ezekiel, can, they, can these bones live? He, re- he responds, well, God, you know. <laughs> and God says, speak the word of God over these bones and watch what I do. And Ezekiel speaks the word of God over this valley of dry bones. And all of a sudden, ligaments form on the bones. And then he looks and he sees flesh now covering the bones. And all of a sudden, it's no longer a valley of dry bones, but it is a valley of bodies. And Ezekiel looks back to God and he says, well, there's no breath in them. God responds, speak my word over them that they may breathe. And Ezekiel prophesies over these these bodies and he says, the breath of God may come into you. And at that moment, God's Spirit just pours breath into the bodies and the bodies grow warm and they stand to their feet, an army of men. You see, what John is doing here is he is He is speaking the word of God, the word of truth over us. And as God leads us into our souls and into our hearts, and as we see this valley of dry bones that exists within us, it's the word of God that speaks over these dry bones and the ligaments and the muscles and the flesh come together and God speaks life into us and we come alive. And we know that we're alive because we believe that Jesus is the Christ. That He is our Savior. What I believe God wants of us within this church is a community of people who are reborn. Who have seen the valley of dry bones in their soul. The Word of God has spoken over that valley of dry bones and we are reborn. You look at your life, you look at your soul, and you see these bones, and you say, well, what must I do to be saved? The answer is always the same. Turn your eyes to Christ. Look to Christ, and you will find that you are transformed. You, are fu- you will find that you have been reborn. And when this happens, when we are a community of people who are transformed and reborn and and, and fundamentally different than we once were, our neighbors will see that. Those on your block will see that there's something different about you. You are fundamentally different than they are and they will begin to see their own miserable condition. And if there is a community of people who are reborn and transformed I believe Baltimore will be different, a different place. May God sweep through us. May His Spirit take us to the valley of dry bones in our soul and may the word of the gospel prophesy over those bones. Look to Christ and may we see our souls come alive. Well, what must we do? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glorious grace. Let's pray. God, thank you for...
this opportunity to open up this word one last time, this book of 1 John. And God, I, I, I pray that the truth that we have uh, seen here will stick with us. Um, anything that I have said this morning that must be forgotten, I pray that you will wipe it from minds and that your word will stick. That you will transform us, that you will, that those who are, are looking at their souls right now and they're seeing a valley of dry bones, that right now you will give them rebirth. That you will put ligaments on those bones and flesh and breathe life into them that they may live. And it's in the name of Jesus, who we call Christ, we pray. Amen.